This is the Women Emerging Expedition Podcast, so you can follow the ups and downs and the roundabouts of the expedition and play your part in them. 24 women started on the 28th of May 2022 on this virtual expedition that will take nine months. We are women from across the world determined to find an approach to leadership that resonates with women. We'll be successful so that women the world over will be able to say, if that's leadership, I'm in. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this 17th episode of the podcast. Julie Middleton here, expedition leader. If you're thinking my voice sounds a little different, it's because I am now fortunately recovering from COVID. This is the last in the series of three episodes that have been called the Zeitgeist episodes. They mark the start of the expedition. The 24 women are out there, they're, they're in the early stage of their exploring. And while they do this, we thought we'd take a bit of time out and look at um, the zeitgeist. What's in the air? What's in the air outside the bubble? The, the air that's inside our bubble. What's, what's in the air outside our bubble? This particular episode is called The Hunger Games. Looking at how the system that women are operating in all around the world bears more resemblance that we would probably care to admit to The Hunger Games. Let me remind you what The Hunger Games were. They started, of course, as a series of books, but then became a series of films dystopian novels and dystopian films with the the heroine Katniss Everdeen do you remember her played by Jennifer Lawrence they all took place in a fictional place called Panem where every year children were selected to do battle to do battle in a compulsory sort of death match called the Hunger Games it was a very compelling and truly horrible series of films and programs and it was very interesting talking to Paula and Sarah about why they saw this parallel between the Hunger Games and the reality of the world that we live in. So just before we jump into it I thought just go back to it yes I am much better I have had Covid it wasn't the nicest of Covid um, it was pretty grim but somehow it sort of feels sort of slightly appropriate uh, in this last of the zeitgeist episodes. It sort of feels right and fitting that I have COVID. Three reasons. One, because COVID surely is in our zeitgeist. And um, I've always felt, you know, as we've been through this extraordinary period and people keep on talking about things have to change, that things won't change because we'll all just revert back to the old ways quite quickly. They'll only change if we, as leaders, demand and force and behave that they have changed. The second reason is that I think that, in a funny way, it reflects some of the thinking that's beginning to emerge from the 24 expedition members around leadership not just being an intellectual exercise, but a, an intensely physical exercise. One not just of the head, but of the body. To try and express this in words rather better of one of the members of the expedition, 
she writes, For years I've struggled with the unwritten and conditioned response, the one where we turn to the intellect to solve and resolve problems. A conditioning that each and every time asks that I overcome what I feel in the body, to respond to the pressure, to be objective, to value rationality above all else. Meanwhile, I inhabit the body of a woman, a body that is continually expressing intelligence in ways that appear to be far beyond my control, a body that responds to its natural environment and generates its own rhythm, its own clarity on when to rise up and when to sink down. To listen to its wisdom, I do not need language. I don't need to think. I have to allow myself to be and to be present. And I think the third reason why somehow having COVID in this zeitgeist period of the podcast is it's given me a bit of a moment also to to slightly sit back and to um to think a little bit of the bigger picture and and also to think about my own leadership of the expedition uh does it take covid for me to sit back and think a little um isn't that a sad reflection upon me but as I have, it's, it's allowed me to listen and to wonder just a little bit more, to remind myself that if you're leading a group of extraordinary women, you have to lead incredibly lightly. But in that lightness also, endlessly, quietly, tempts people back when they start to stray off the course so that we really do produce an approach to leadership that resonates with women. And it's allowed me to remember, as ever, I I think that the legitimacy of a leader comes so much from the fact that the leader is looking, not just at the medium term, even the long term, that that they're looking one step ahead. And people trust you because they think you're covering that, that base. And then also, to me, the crucial role of a leader is to connect things up and to to listen so fiercely that you spot the connections and and make those connections happen you couple people up you connect their thinking so in some ways it's been right that i've had covid but let's go back to the hunger games and let's go back to talking to sarah and to paula who are both in very different parts of the world doing very different things but seeing quite a common thing in the zeitgeist. Sarah and Paula, uh, this is the third of the zeitgeist um, episodes. Zeitgeist, the, the, the feeling in the air, the spirit of the age, the winds blowing, but in the case, certainly when we were talking, Sarah, more of the sense of the steam in the air or even the sort of toxic steam in the air. And when we started talking about it, Sarah, you started using the expression, the Hunger Games, Tell us why the world feels like it's reflecting what you saw in the Hunger Games. And actually tell us a little bit about the conversation you then had with Paula, who of course is the other side of the world, works in a completely different sector, but the two of you seem to see so much, but actually you were almost like unpacking a Russian doll. There was sort of, each of you could see a different aspect of this. And it was intriguing watching you having that conversation and 
and the sense of I wonder what's at the center of this the, this Russian doll was fascinating. So over to you both. Do the Russian doll. Thank you, Julia. And I and again, I think the steam is probably if I was on video is still being visible. I mean, I think it, this this analogy came up from a few conversations with me with friends in the field, but also became just more deeply embedded for me or real for me because my ten year old son is obsessed with reading the Hunger Games books. So I go to bed at night hearing the tales of the fighting and who's who's at war with who and that the who's going to be the winner. And I think it just became this deep parallel where for myself I've been unpacking just how, what am I participating in? What is the bigger game? And particularly in global development, it's very on parallel with the Hunger Games, right? There's a certain amount of resources. You have to compete to win, which ultimately means there's a loser. And it, it, the incentives within the system, talking about the Russian doll, is that, you know, you don't collaborate. You don't. You want to have the best idea. You want to have the answers before you even start as so you have the best chance of actually winning and competing. And I think that is the part that I just found super fascinating, Paula, and talking to you in the film industry, how much this was also present. And, and just how much for myself, deeply reflecting on this kind of hunger game system that we're participating in, what is our role, whether or not we're actively think we're participating, we are, and how, what does it mean? And so I would love to hear, since we last talked, Paula, how you're thinking about it or how it's been rattling around in your brain. Well, I think, I think we were discussing the hunger games in, in feminist terms a bit, or how a film like hunger games is, is uh, sold as a as a feminist film when actually when you unpick its its elements you realize it's actually not that the the dial of a feminist view is really small but what it's been turned around to let's say differentiate um the hunger games from superman even in these sold as or positioned as feminist roles you said something that really benign at me is this idea too that even those feminist roles are still taking on masculine identities so even when you have this feminist role they're still out there fighting and what we value in terms of leadership and winning is still very masculine and I've really been thinking about that a lot in terms of and also your analogy too of just we're not spinning the dial. We're not even stepping out of the paradigm. We're not starting out of the Russian doll. We're just taking a small piece of that bigger system or puzzle behind it and turning it up a little bit. But where have you seen, have you seen examples where that dial has been fully turned or where have you found inspiration and in people stepping outside of that or pushing those bounds in ways that acknowledge that they're playing, they're playing the game, but they're also not willing to play by the rules. Maybe in Mars. <laughs> I'll go with you. <laughs> I don't know. I've heard in Mars, people play totally out of the, the club. I think that actually we cannot because the two or three people who have the total monopoly on going to Mars are three white guys. Yeah, all making very phallic rockets. No, we're already we're already having another another planet very soon to be spoiled, but apparently. So no, I think I think it's very very difficult. To, it's like. It's like when we talk about race and when we, when we talk about gender, when we talk about race, the whole water that surrounds us is actually the system. Nobody is out of the system. We're not. It's, it's impossible to get out of that system. You can create, um, I mean, radical ideas are not welcomed, really. They're not. It's just very, very difficult to, 
get a, something part of the system, meaning a studio, where mm -hmm. there is a chain of, of command that is mainly male, and especially at the top end, where people need to justify what they're going to do. And a lot of times they need comparables so they can actually say, if this doesn't work, this is my rationale as to why I put money in. And these days it's more about what has been done before, how can you replicate that, and how can you justify your answers or your, or your reasoning. There is a big crisis of original ideas. That's why you see remakes and tenfolds one, two, three, four, five iterations of the same universe, of the same thing, because that actually is very easy for those in power and in chain of commands, mainly male, mainly white, justifying what they're putting their money and betting on. What is risky, right, is defined by those in power. Those are the ones that have won the Hunger Games. They're defining the risk. They're defining the playing field. And how do you get actually in there to disrupt? Because I've seen over and over again, particularly women, and then if you get women of color that come with a really brilliant idea, the bar for them is so much higher to prove that it's innovative, that it's sustainable, that it's but when someone comes with an idea that fits within the paradigm, which fits within the status quo, there's what a brilliant idea. The risk isn't even a part of the equation. So not only are we playing in this game, the rules are different based on who you are in order to go up the hierarchy, right? And so how do you, you know, as you say, like, we've got to go to Mars, we've got, we've got three big competitors to get there. Right, but how do you, have you seen examples too in, the, in this, or I guess, how do you think about it? How do you not participate in it or reinforce this game in a way, like you say, that actually challenges it and turns the dial besides just one, one mark on the, on the wheel? Unfortunately, this is the conundrum. If you are against a certain system, you cannot just say, okay, but now the system wants me, so I'm just going to say fine. And that is the biggest trap because in, for example, in the film world, you get, that is actually, of course, a, an interpretation from, from capitalism. You get the idea that success is more money, that success is more celebrity, that success has to do with, um, you know, whether you can buy a 20 something million dollar house. I mean, those kind of things, which are, which are such crazy ideas of success in a way. That, that we just normalize because there are magazines sustaining it and websites sustaining it, whatever. So this is a whole enormous machinery. Like It's like the ocean. We are surrounded by these waters. We will have to reject so many things in order to, and be very, very comfortable with being an outsider. Be extremely comfortable with being an accepted and liked by that central, central focal point of, of power. I find that hard. That's that's where I struggle the most. It's like a, it's like a rubber band wanting to go back to homeostasis. I get out there to the edges where it's about to break. And then I just want to go back to my default factory setting of, okay, I can accept this because yeah. it's so hard. And it's particularly the way we've been socialized to not be liked. And the things that when we take on masculine traits, we're called horrible names, we're bitches, we're bossy, we're, you know, oh, ambition is a good thing for males. And it's a terrible thing for us females. Yeah. Um, and so the, I struggle with this, particularly in, cause I'm, I am inherently competitive. 
Like, so I, I like a good game. I like the idea of winning, yeah. but I, but not with the value base that we built the system. And that's the system of the Hunger Games. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. It's very, it's very bluntly in your face. In this, mm -hmm. it's like it's like Hunger Games one hundred and one. So, what are the assumptions behind the Hunger Games? They are that that it's a good idea to set people off against each other because then they don't fight the system. Yeah, they it keeps people in their place because they're too busy fighting each other. The assumption is that the audience to the film loves watching a winner. I think it's more the underdog. Yeah. Is the rise of the underdog. I think that with the Hunger Games, you have to start at the, at the beginning. The father dies for this girl to be able to take that space. If the father didn't die, Katniss will not be allowed to go out there and perform all this, say, male assigned roles, such as fighting, killing, whatever, violence, all of that. She kind of does it because a male disappears and that gives her the justification. To be able to step in. Yeah, her mother mm -hmm. is, a, is a pitiful character. So, so she has to prove time and time again, all this male behavior mm -hmm. in order to gain respect because she is respected and um, accepted as somebody talented. The moment that she is almost like somebody walking into a room and almost behaving like very masculine. And, and in order to, do, to get the respect, she does that. But the viewpoint, even though Katniss is a woman, it's an absolute frame and viewpoint from a male universe. You know, all her advisors, all her trainers, outside from the one who cares about fashion, are male. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, 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 and of course, there is the, the woman that appears uh, with Julianne Moore later on. And she is a bit like, that woman that actually made it having the male traits a bit like margaret thatcher when people talk about her and it's like oh but there was margaret thatcher and it's like yeah well and then there was this other ceo but they kind of had to mold themselves to become this iron lady, iron right? lady. and and julianne moore is that kind of character who is like the traitor she appears like something but then she is another thing and as we all know when the woman becomes the traitor, and I'm quoting most people, is worse than men. It's actually the same, but mm -hmm. seen in a woman, as you were saying, Sarah, about being ambitious and all that, is actually punishable twice. Men. It's showing women, here's the roadmap to succeed. Adapt, take on these traits. <laughs> this is what will be rewarded. And if you don't, there are sanctions. <laughs> there are real consequences to that. In many instances, for stepping outside of those bounds, they're, they're very harsh and they're swift, depending on how much you push those bounds of what is accepted. I, I don't think, you know, and I think to your point, Paula, too, it's, it's, it's reinforcing an existing paradigm with a very, very small turn to the knob. And but, a man saying, and a man saying, it's all right, trust me. Trust it's me, I got you. I'll save you in the end. I'll be the person that you can lean on. How many films you can recall of that, that scene? M male characters, I can think immediately of Indiana Jones. Male characters that are totally ridiculous. You don't really, yeah, I mean, it's just terrible, terrible male characters as well as super stereotypical. 
who out of the blue tell the woman in the film, trust me, and they both jump. And you're like, why would she trust this guy? Right? Like, it's, <laughs> jump, jump. it's like the opposite. You cannot trust that guy. How is it possible? But actually, I think, was it that, I don't know, maybe it was Bertolt Brecht or whoever it was who said um, that art is not something that reflects reality, but a hammer to shape it. I actually think that The Hunger Games, like many other films that exist out there, uh, what, what they're telling um, the audience, which is definitely a mostly female audience, I, I, I'll bet that was, that was aimed for, is that um, you know, patriarchy is worth sustaining. Yes, and you can benefit from it if you play you by it. You can benefit from it if you know how to play the game and you can do this and that. It's not a radical idea of how you can create another system. The ultimate power in Panem, it's male. The <laughs> ultimate power in the advisory team is male. So this is not a whole um, radical idea of a huge universe created um, by women for women and including men eventually as well. <laughs> it just is the other way around. It's like, this is my world. I invite you. You have to be frightened of this future. You, if you work hard, you will get it. I, when I do um, workshops for women filmmakers, I always ask um, one question. I said look, at the very beginning, and I said, how many of you would believe if you work harder, you will make it? And they all raise, not all, but the majority raises their hand. And then I say, but don't you believe that you're working hard enough? You are definitely working really hard. You are bending over backwards. You're doing that and mothering and this and that and so many other things. Even women who don't have children are doing so many other things in their Caretaking. house, their partners. I mean, there is so much on those shoulders. So mm -hmm. I said, no, it's not about working harder. There is a system that is biased. And those people who made it, they may have adapted themselves to this game, and that's fine, but that doesn't change the game. Yes, mm -hmm. I, I love winning awards, let's say, of course. I, I love them. They give me validation in the eyes of the system. And of course, they allow me to garner maybe a tiny bit more power or a tiny bit more time to do something that I'd like to do a bit differently. But at the end of the day, I think this, that is a trap because it's like being against the monarchy and being really happy to get a knighthood. <laughs> it's a great analogy. But you bring up a really point in my, one of the, the people in my life that I love most dearly always says to me too, it's, it's it, yes, it's power, but is it, it's how you use your power wisely. It's not the absence of power. Feminist leadership isn't the absence of power. It's how you use that power. Absolutely. And what I hear from you too is there's an opportunity, potentially, I love this analogy of accepting a knighthood when you're against the monarchy. But this idea then too, what do you do with that power? How do you wield it? How do you, how do you still continue based on whatever those values are? And particularly as a leader and you accepting that Oscar on the stage, how do you use that time? How do you use it? To actually shift the system right to something that is except, more except that in my experience you accept that knighthood or you accept that oscar with every intention <laughs> of, if if it's in empowering you to be a rebel but by accepting it you're already a weaker re rebel and actually mm -hmm. you probably accepted it 
probably more because you were flattered than that you wanted to be a rebel and the rebel disappears pretty fast. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's once you are in the system and you accept something from the system, it's a big trap because we always accepted wanting to, oh, now that I have more power, I will be able to change the system better. But actually we're not gonna change the system until we really don't care. Or and, until it's not validating whatever insecurity or thing that we are looking for self-validation, right? That, that sense of, I find that fascinating too, as you said, because like it is an internal battle because it does feel good to be seen, to be validated, to feel good, particularly women. We are from the time we're born, right? Coded, we're all grateful for the opportunity, the validation, we're told good job, good, you know, pat on the head, keep going, you can do it. So there's this internal, very deep rooted sense and, and desire to be validated at the same time. And I, the, um, Julia, that just this idea too of what are you giving up to by accepting anything within the system, whether that validation, the knighthood, the Oscar, Right. And because then you feel indebted in some ways, too. And then you're just such acculturated a part of that. What advice would you give to women leaders when they begin to realize that they're caught up in this system? And and even if they haven't been actively participating in it, even by observing, they have been caught up in the system. Okay, by the nature, the system will betray you. The nature of the system implicates a betrayal of who you are as a woman because it wasn't created for you. You are not the template of the system. So if you're staying in the system, you will be betrayed sooner, later. So the sooner you realize that and decide what you want to do with that, I think is better. That's the first thing I would say. You have to create an alternative system, a peripheral system, a outcast system, a women's system, whatever it is. But while you're still in the system, benefiting from it, comfy, cozy, unless you move, you don't hear the, the chains kind of system, you will be betrayed at some point because it's in the nature. And, and don't be impressed. I mean, there is, there is no, it's not vertical. It's not, there is no next thing and next thing and next thing, especially for women. It's, there will never be that kind. It's not, it's not a destination. The system craves um, fuel and fuel needs people trying to continue this kind of hamster ladder um, thing that takes so many shapes and life just goes. And then we're told that we also have an internal clock and then we are the only ones carrying time and thinking about you know, finite lives, et cetera. So the system will betray you at some point. Sarah, does this come full circle back to the Hunger Games? I think it does. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of parallels to the advice that Paolo just gave to the Hunger Games, which is the system exists. And the first part of it is acknowledging that you are part of a system, identifying what role you are playing. And does it align with your values and this whole back idea to how do you use your power wisely? And how do you find those that also see the system for what it is? And then, you know, finding in the ways in which you use your power collectively um, to your community to dismantle it. And I think there's just a bigger question around how do we dismantle it and replace it with something that's truly equitable, that's designed to be equitable. And that, I mean, I think 
this is one of what I feel like is my like mantra in life is like, I don't want to retrofit anything anymore because it's not me. It's also, you start to feel insane, <laughs> especially when you are on the margins and you're you see it and other people don't see it. I mean, I'm with Paula, I'll go to Mars with you, Paula, but you know, if we're going to stay here, we have to, as leaders, we need to embody and lead in new ways. And we need to help others see the system for what it is and use our power wisely and also find collective ways to create that new reality, that new way of being. And I think it is, it's a responsibility because right now what we've done is those of us, it is like full-time professional, mother, we have not taken anything off the plate. <laughs> the plate is overflowing. And that is a fundamental shift in how we organize and how we view and what we value. Because if at the end of the day, we still value <laughs> um, the hunger games, winners, losers, power in the few, very masculine traits of fighting. And those are our solutions that we're putting forth. Our planet will be destroyed and so will we. And so this moment requires this kind of idea of collective courage and collectivism. And that's what really inspires me in all of this is being able to see the system for what it is. And then finding, as Kabbalah said, that community, that group of people that are comfortable and will be on the margins together. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Paula. I will be on the margins with you, <laughs> whether it's on Earth or on Mars? What have I learned from talking to you? Firstly, <laughs> I haven't learned something. I've just had a huge sense of relief that if Sarah admits to not having seen the system in all its glory from the start, that somehow makes it better than I haven't either. Um, I, think, I think I've felt it, but I'm not sure that I've actually seen it that clearly. But um, I think the second thing of listening to you both has helped me somehow, somehow people talk about systems change and it's, it's a, such a, a cerebral expression. It's just, it's a word. And to me, words make much more sense when they have a story around them. And now systems change has the word hunger games around it um, and has the power of a story and the power of visuals. And I, I think understanding the systems change issue is, is much, much easier for me. Uh, and it has to be said, if anybody says, trust me, I'm not sure that I've ever really trusted anybody quite like that, but <laughs> uh, that's, that's etched on my head, trust me. I think it's been really useful reminding yourself just how difficult it is to be a rebel, either from the inside or from the outside. I, I, I remember in podcast episode five, where Lissa Young was, was making actually the opposite case that, that you want to produce change from within, um, especially if you are Lissa, who, who is much more comfortable producing change from within. But um, you need to be inside so that you can see what's going on, don't you? But outside so that you can see that there's another way. So balancing those two and remaining a rebel is very tricky. And, and I think that this episode of The Zeitgeist has also totally reminded me just what a tiny piece of the jigsaw 
the expedition is, tiny but crucial. The, the system change is so huge and so cavernous and so vast, but I don't believe it will, that it has a hope of change unless that tiny piece of the jigsaw, which is um, an expression of the approach to leadership that resonates for women, is 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 crystallised, is clarified, is shared, is delighted in, which is why I'm so committed to the expedition. So the three Zeitgeist episodes are over. Next week we're back to normal service, back to leadership insights, maybe rather more familiar territory for me. Um, especially this last Zeitgeist episode has really pushed me out of my bubble. It it did from the start because I had to go and watch the Hunger Games, <laughs> but it has it has been very interesting. But back next week to the leadership insights and do not do not do not miss next week's podcast. You will regret it. Put every bell and alarm and reminder going because we will talk to Annie, who is an extraordinary and glorious musician and an also extraordinary and glorious Buddhist nun. And she talks about leadership, but particularly how leaders must smile. Talk next week. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We would love you to follow the expedition and provide your own stories and perspectives. You can do this by subscribing to this podcast and joining the Women Emerging Group on LinkedIn, where you can have your say.